This is the To The Point Podcast. Together with our ERISA attorney, we'll explore key Affordable Care Act and trending compliance topics all in 15 minutes or less. Now here's our host, Sarah Gillespie. Welcome to our To The Point Podcast. This is Sarah Gillespie. I'm the Compliance Director at Lipscomb & Pitts Insurance in Memphis, Tennessee. And welcome. We're glad to have you with us on another one of our compliance podcasts. As always, we have with us our ERISA attorney extraordinaire, Stacey Barrow. Hey, Stacey, how are you today? I'm good, Sarah. Thanks. So, Stacey, today I thought a helpful um, topic for the audience would be one on open enrollment compliance. So, whenever you're listening to this, it's September 2018, and we have a lot of employers who renew with calendar year plans. And so, they're going to be facing open enrollment here pretty quick. And there are a few topics that I wanted to discuss. Some of them have actually had their very own podcast already, so we'll keep this conversation at a high level. But in general, I was thinking we could touch on plan limits, affordability, distribution of required notices, and the irrevocability rule that's associated with pre-tax elections. So, Stacey, let's start with plan limits. Like I said, we won't get into the weeds too heavily on some topics, and this is one because you and I actually recorded an entire podcast on this exact subject. So, uh, audience, be sure to listen to that podcast if you want to learn details. It was really helpful. But in general, HSA high deductible health plan, HDHP, and ACA limits are typically indexed annually, or at least looked at annually. They don't necessarily all change, but many do. So first, uh, make sure your plans are in line with these new levels, particularly pay attention to where the minimums and the maximums are for the next year. But Stacey, I was hoping that you could comment on the interaction of these limits within the context of non-grandfathered plans. Why do employers need to pay attention to this and maybe could give an example of what to watch out for? Sure. Um, and the the issue um, does tend to arise when you have an HSA qualified plan um, and you're trying to deal with the ACA out-of-pocket limits, which apply, you know, to all non-grandfathered plans, including high-deductible plans. Um, so when you have a high-deductible plan that's HSA qualified, you can have an out-of-pocket limit of up to $6,750 for single coverage, $13,500 for family coverage in 2019 or for your 2019 plan year. Um, and then the ACA also has out-of-pocket limits that are higher than those that apply to high deductible plans. The ACA out-of-pocket limits are $7,900 for a single and $15,800 for family coverage for the 2019 plan year. Um, so ACA limits are a little higher than high deductible plan limits. Um, and so you wouldn't really think that the two would kind of bounce into each other um, all that frequently. But there's a, a, a nuance to the rule um, under the ACA in that um, the ACA out-of-pocket limit rules require um, an embedded out-of-pocket limit in all plans, including high deductible plans. In other words, um, the maximum amount that any one individual can incur in out-of-pocket spending under a family plan in 2019 
is $7,900. Now, you can have a, an out-of-pocket limit of 10000 12000 15000 but once one family member, his or herself, has $7,900 in out-of-pocket spending, um, the the um, the limit applies um, on that you know per person basis. Rest of the family members will family members will still have cost sharing, but that one person's costs are capped at seventy nine hundred dollars. Um, so, how does this work with the HSA plan? Then we know that when you have an HSA plan, the out of pocket limit for family coverage can exceed thirteen thousand five hundred dollars. Again, that's going to be for twenty nineteen. But under the ACA, there has to be an embedded out-of-pocket limit that doesn't exceed $7,900. So as an example, then for 2019, when you have a high deductible plan that's also subject to these ACA out-of-pocket limit rules, you can have an out-of-pocket limit of $6,750 for single, $13,500 for family, and be HSA compliant as long as you embed an individual out-of-pocket limit in the family tier, that's no more than $7,900, and that makes it ACA compliant. So imagine you have a plan, it's a pretty common plan design, and this really only happens when um, the out-of-pocket limits are, are high, right? So say you have a high deductible plan with the out-of-pocket limit in 2019, it's gonna be $5,000 for single and $10,000 for family. Now, I think many carriers and TPAs, they will insist, um, maybe due to system limitations, that the out-of-pocket limit or the embedded out-of-pocket limit be neatly one half of the family limit, and, and that's not required. In other words, you can have a, a high deductible plan with a $5,000 out-of-pocket limit for single, $10,000 out-of-pocket limit for family, and the embedded out-of-pocket limit doesn't have to be $5,000. It can be as high as $7,900, um, and that's totally fine as long as the carrier or the TPA can administer um, an embedded out-of-pocket limit that's not neatly one half of the family out-of-pocket limit. Um, I know that's probably convoluted to follow, uh, but if this is an issue um, you've been struggling with and you've thought about, um, hopefully this will help clear it up. Yeah, so as you can see, this is definitely a technical conversation. There's different pieces that interact that you have to think about. So item number one for open enrollment compliance is pay attention to your plan limits. So speaking of limits, let's move to item number two and talk about the affordability threshold for 2019. So in 2018, we saw it go down to 9.56% from 9.69 in 2017. So in 2019, we're seeing it climb back to 9.86%. So Stacy, my question for this is, um, do employers with a January 1st start date have to use the 986 level right from the get-go? I think there's something about a six-month rule where you can look at what the affordability percentage was maybe six months prior to your start date. What, what does all that look like? Sure. And so we're talking here about um, affordability in terms of the percentage of an employee's wages or rate of pay um, or the federal poverty level 
that an employer can charge for coverage before um, they run into penalty exposure um, under the ACA's employer mandate. So as Sarah said, each year um, it gets indexed, may go up, may go down. Um, we've already seen that happen um, in the last few years. Um, so generally the affordability percentage is, you know, you would use this, um, you know, starting with the, you know, the, the plan year beginning in the, the calendar year that it applies, right? So for the, the new one for 2019, 9.86%, you can charge up to 9.86%, um, you know, of the cost of single coverage for plan years beginning in 2019. Um, and for any plan year beginning in 2017, you can't charge more than 9.69%, but you are, you know, allowed to um, use that on a plan year basis. Um, the six month rule, um, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure that relates to the affordability factor. Um, I believe that for when you're looking at the federal poverty level safe harbor, um, you can use or you use the um, FPL in place any time within the six months prior to the start of the plan year. Um, I, and you know, I, I'm pretty sure that's how that, that rule operates and it's not with respect to the affordability um, percentage, but um, if I'm misremembering that, we'll we'll uh, address that in, in a future podcast. But um, pretty sure the way that it works is that um, you would use the affordability percentage um, that's effective for the plan for the year in which your plan year begins. Okay, that that actually is ringing a dull bell here. So I knew there was something about the six month rule, and your comment about it being related to the poverty level makes actually sense to uh, as far as what I recall now. So, okay. So if you've got a plan year that's starting January 1st, if you're looking at next year and what your affordability should be uh, based on 9.86% is going to be what you should shoot for. There's nothing wrong, I guess, at this point with um, looking six months prior because it was actually a lower level. So you're being more conservative, even if you were to do that. But as far as what you have to look at for 2019, we're talking about 9.86% of the person's wages, and you can charge no more than that for their employee share of coverage, single coverage. Okay, so that was number two, open enrollment compliance. Number two is affordability limit. So number three, something else to think about is going to be distribution of the annually required notices. So there are several notices and disclosures that have to be provided each year, and open enrollment is actually a great time to accomplish that because other materials are already going out. So, you know, maybe you can streamline your process, and employers have employees' attention related to benefit matters. So Stacy and I recorded a podcast on this topic as well. If you want a deeper dive on that subject, we have one just dedicated to that, so be sure to listen to it. But Stacy, on a, a high level, you know, with this discussion, what do employers need to know about document distribution and open enrollment? Are there things they can or cannot do? Um, well, you know, I think your your point about, you know, reviewing your open enrollment materials and um, you know, maybe tailoring them, um, you know, is good. Um, 
one thing that we always look with, with to do with employers, you know, when we're really bringing on a new client, looking at our open enrollment materials, a lot of times there is a lot of duplication. Um, you know, you may find the same notice in your SPD and open enrollment materials and carrier documents, and it's often fine to, to have that duplication. Um, but if you're looking to really pare down your um, open enrollment materials, you might look to see, you know, what's already in your SPD. And if you're distributing your SPD each year, um, because maybe you're doing things electronically and it's just really easy for you to, to send out the new SPD, then you may not need to include all that information in your open enrollment materials. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to give examples, but we see things like, you know, the, the, the WICRA notice, Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act, is an annual notice requirement. And we, you know, you almost always see that in open enrollment materials. And then employers will tend to include the Newborns and Mothers Health Protection Act notice, which is fine, but I think technically that's an SPD requirement. You may not, you know, strictly speaking, need that in your open enrollment materials. Um, so I, I think it's always good to take a look um, and see if there's any, um, you know, room to, to pare down your um, your open enrollment materials, especially if you have to do things by paper, um, for for sure. And so this this may be an extreme example, but um, speaking of streamlining and paring down, we have a client who actually files the extension for their 5500 because when they do that, the two months that the summary annual report has to be delivered falls within their open enrollment time, so they can deliver their summary annual report as part of all of their other open enrollment materials and, you know, while they're sending things out at the same time. So again, just in, in that, you know, conversation of streamlining and paring down and, and trying to make things purposeful, that may be extreme. I don't know that you want to file an extension for your 5500 just for that purpose, but just, you know, a comment. And then um, one more conversation, Stacey, about electronic distribution. Can you remind everybody about the rules if you're going to distribute things electronically? <laughs> Sure. Uh, so the Department of Labor has established a safe harbor for electronic distributions, and they kind of group employees into two uh, classes, or, or I should say recipients into two classes. There are folks who automatically consent, and those are people that use their employer's information technology system as an integral part of their job duties. So, you know, someone like me, Sarah, you know, we spend a lot of our times on the computer. You know, we're required to use it as part of our job. We would automatically consent to electronic disclosures. If our employers wanted to, you know, provide us with SPDs, they could direct us to, a, 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 you know, an intranet site. Um, any other recipient um, would have to affirmatively consent to electronic disclosure, meaning they would have to, you know, fill out a, a consent form, essentially, uh, put in their email, either work or personal, and then they could also be provided with documents electronically. And I think if, if you're an employer who's looking to kind of move to more of an electronic distribution system, but you have a lot of employees who need to affirmatively consent, I would bake it into your new hire materials, um, in your annual enrollment materials, just have people you know, as, as often as possible sign off on electronic consent. Um, it does make things a lot easier. And then anytime 
you want to post something new out on the internet site, all you have to do is email your, your participants and say a new document has been posted. It contains important benefit information. Please go see it. Um, but you know, that's, those are, those are the safe harbors. And, you know, we have seen different approaches over the year, over the years when, you know, you, maybe just have situations where it's not possible to get consents. You don't want to print 800 pages. And so, you know, you're going to um, take another approach that might not fit within the safe harbor. Um, I've known employers to, you know, provide employees with USB keys that have all the documents on them and say, you know, you want to print it, we'll make printers available, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's, it may not be exactly within the safe harbor, but, um, you know, some employers might get comfortable with some other approaches as well. So this is, if this is a new conversation or new information to you, especially regarding the electronic distribution, and you want to talk about it further, definitely reach out to us. We would be happy to talk to you about that. And also to share more about that consent form that can be used for people who don't regularly have that electronic um, access, computer access. Okay, so topic number three was in relation to open enrollment distribution of notices. So the last topic, this one is more just a good reminder. So this has to do with benefit elections and, and the idea that benefit elections related to lines of coverage that are paid pre-tax under a cafeteria plan are going to be made for the entire year. And this is due to something called the irrevocability rule under the IRS. So Stacy, can you explain further what this rule is and why it's an important part of the compliance discussion? Um, sure. There's a, uh, a trade-off that employees have to make um, when they are going to pay for benefits pre-tax. Um, it is due to, as you said, the irrevocability rule under Section 125, and it just stands for the proposition that once you make an election um, for the coverage period, the, the plan year, it's irrevocable unless you experience a change in status event um, or, you know, you're changing plans because your spouse has a HIPAA special enrollment event and is enrolling in their employer's plan. Um, and they're fairly strict rules, and you're probably all, you know, relatively familiar with them, you know, having a child, getting a divorce, um, your spouse loses a job, um, their insurance premiums increase, um, their plan years are different. You know, there are, there are all these different um, events that would permit a change, but if it's not one of the permitted events, um, then the employer allowing a change, um, you know, there's a couple potential issues, right? Um, you know, if you let people in and out of the plan without, you know, following the written terms of the medical plan, you know, there are issues there, right? The carriers could potentially deny coverage. There's all the other you know, issues under the medical plan. But with respect to Section 125, there's also the potential that the IRS could disqualify your plan upon audit um, if you're not um, following the irrevocability rule. And what that means is that, you know, if you're letting employees kind of change their elections without regard to the requirements, then um, the IRS could 
you know, essentially disqualify the plan, cause any pre-tax contributions to be included in the employee's income. You know, they, they might just do this for the HCEs, the highly comped employees. They might do it for the whole plan, depending on how egregious it is. It's not the most likely thing to happen in the world, but, you know, you still are required to operate your 125 plan in accordance with its terms. And if you don't, then you risk income inclusion and typically for the HCEs. So um, not something that uh, you, know, you really want to, to do on a regular basis. Now we often say, you know, do things like this, like say an employee misses open enrollment, but that you wanna let them enroll, they're a few days late, the carrier doesn't really you know, care, they say fine. Um, what you could do is if you're concerned about the Section 125 issue is allow the employee to pay post-tax for the remainder of the year. And so he's in the plan, he has the coverage, he's still getting the employer contribution, but his share is just gonna be after tax. So this is not necessarily a new concept, the idea that you have to have some kind of qualifying life status change to make a mid-plan year change, and also that, you know, these elections are locked in for a year. But you might be surprised how many times we actually have this come up, you know, as a, a broker where an employer has someone who wants to make a change and they aren't aware that they can't and they want out. And so anyhow, the reason that this is included in open enrollment compliance is just because we want you to remember to remind your folks that this is an election they're making for the full year. So that wraps up our open enrollments compliance list of items. Thanks so much, Stacy, for walking us through all of that and for explaining it. We really appreciate all of that. Oh, my pleasure. And listen to another podcast. Join one of those that I had mentioned that we had a deeper dive on if you want to know more about those topics. But um, we welcome you to listen to any of our other topics. Thanks so much for joining us and have a great day. <laughs>